Good morning. This is Danny Haifong, and you are listening to episode two of Cold War Brew, where you can get your coffee, get your brew, and listen to and follow along and participate in analysis and discussion of the monumental moment that we are living in under this new Cold War. I will be talking about the history, the politics, the economics, all the various facets of Cold War politics, Cold War developments, and especially this new Cold War. In this episode in particular, I will be covering censorship and the new Cold War because there have been a number of developments in recent weeks which point to the incredible dangers that censorship poses under this political regime. I will let people come into the room and continue to just provide the analysis. I usually do this first by giving about 20 minutes or so of what I'm covering for the day, and then the next 20, 25 minutes will be dedicated to the discussion portion where you can essentially call in, give comments, ask questions. This episode will be a little bit shorter than the last episode, which went well over an hour. This one will probably last hopefully 45 minutes total just to keep things concise. And I know all of you have so many things to do on your Sundays, but this podcast will be each Sunday at 11.30 a.m. Eastern, so please do subscribe if you have not yet, and be sure to catch this podcast weekly. So today's topic is the new Cold War and censorship, censorship and the new Cold War. And this is a particularly relevant issue given what has happened in the last week or so. What we saw over the last week was that out of the justification of Russia's military operation in Ukraine, YouTube banned RT America, and then it inevitably, uh, not a week later, banned the entirety of RT International from YouTube. And many people that I know, many people that I respect lost their jobs. Some people that I know and respect, such as Abby Martin and Lee Camp, they lost their entire archives from YouTube of shows that they either did or were continuing to do uh, during uh, this time. And it's an unprecedented move, this censorship that's happening. And it's all justified based on Russia's military operation in Ukraine, which is an outgrowth of this new Cold War. And so there is just this intense wave of Russophobia that is spreading across the United States and the West And these big tech media corporations are using this war and using this Russophobia as an excuse to silence any alternative voices, anti-war voices, anti-imperialist voices. And they are using this to silence anyone who questions the narrative that the corporate media is putting out on the Russia-Ukraine conflict and disallowing people from having the opportunity to question these established narratives. This is what this is all about. This is what the censorship 
is all about, and it must be opposed. But one of the very useful aspects of Russophobia, this anti-Russian sentiment that is just spreading like wildfire across the U.S. and West, the most useful aspect of this is that people will unfortunately either tacitly support or explicitly support these moves as a way to weaken Russia, right? It started with the sanctions. It started with arming Ukraine. It's also moved on into this very dangerous conversation of a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which even Ukraine's president has demanded. And if anyone knows anything about what a no-fly zone is, if you remember the U.S.-NATO war on Yugoslavia, the U.S.-NATO war on Libya, these no-fly zones essentially mean that NATO would be given permission to shoot down Russian forces in the air and on the ground. So that would mean World War III, and that would also mean many Ukrainian casualties, which it seems like Zelensky doesn't have much of a problem with or chooses to ignore. But nonetheless, the media has been whipping up hysteria about all of this to gain public support for further aggressive moves against Russia. And this censorship fits in to all of this. And now this censorship is not new. So while this is a massive escalation taking down RT International, RT America from YouTube altogether, it isn't the first time that YouTube has done this in service of the U.S. war machine. In 2019, Press TV, an outlet that I used to work for, an Iranian outlet which provides pretty decent coverage of international and U.S. and uh, Western-based issues, that outlet was banned from YouTube in 2019. Google and YouTube uh, eliminated their access and then eventually took down their channels. They were also banned on Facebook as well, and much of their social media was scrubbed from each of these platforms, Twitter included, and they've struggled mightily to get their information out to Western audiences given this massive censorship. Uh, A huge component of this is forcing these outlets first to register for uh, uh, with the DOJ under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA Act. And so the DOJ forces these outlets to essentially put down on paper that they are agents of a foreign government and therefore deserve further monitoring and quote-unquote regulation. And so this has not just happened to Press TV, where the consequences have been grave. It happened to RT. It happened to Sputnik before they were taken down. And Sputnik was also taken down on social media and uh, YouTube platforms as well. But uh, these uh, Russian-based outlets, or at least Russian-based in their origins, they were also forced to register for the Foreign Agent Registration Act as well under the Trump administration. And so this has been a longstanding coordinated attack on international media, which reports from countries and ultimately has its administrative base in countries that the United States does not like, that the United States has essentially a target of war upon. So. Essentially, uh, I think some of you may know that another big facet of this censorship campaign under the new Cold War was Russiagate. And so Russiagate, right, was this spurious claim uh, 
that Donald Trump was essentially selected by Russia, Vladimir Putin, and then Russia, quote-unquote, hacked or intervened in some way in the 2016 elections to help Donald Trump get elected. And, of course, there is a litany of evidence that there that these claims have absolutely no basis in reality. But nonetheless, there was a massive federal investigation into this. The Mueller report was produced, which showed that actually there really was no smoking gun here. But this narrative had far-reaching consequences. And one of the consequences was censorship. Right. So not only was international media like RT, Press TV, right, these outlets were censored directly, but also US based outlets, those independent media outlets that challenged imperialism, that promoted an anti war perspective, that challenged a dominant narrative on Russia, Iran a whole host of countries and issues that were forwarded by the Pentagon, they too were censored. And the censorship began in a very subtle manner, one that most of the public would not recognize without either, I think you would need both, but either one, an understanding of how algorithms and how the uh, these search engines work technologically and how they control the flow of information and two, the political consciousness and the political understanding to know that there is this new Cold War going on, that there is this heightened aggression that the United States is waging on Russia, Iran, China, etc. So unless you had an understanding of both of these developments, you were unlikely to understand what was going on. And those who were participating in independent media immediately felt the effects of this. So Google, YouTube, social media as a whole, these big tech Silicon Valley corporations began changing their algorithms in a way that would flag information as quote-unquote fake news. And this began with a shady organization that published an article in 2017 in the Washington Post. It was called Prop or Not. Nobody knew who these, still to this day, nobody knows who these people were, who they worked for, but they were able to publish in Washington, the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos' outlet, which has a major contract with the Central Intelligence Agency. They were able to publish this article, which claimed that the far right and the far left were collaborating in this kind of horseshoe theory as dupes of Russia to forward the Russian perspective. And they claimed that what needed to happen was these outlets needed to be suppressed. And that's exactly what happened, right? These outlets were suppressed. And Black Agenda Report, which I write for, felt the effects immediately. I think something like 40% of our readership declined, right? We lost 40% of our readership. And across the board, outlets like Consortium News, Naked Capitalism, right? Mint Press News, these outlets all felt the heavy hand of censorship in terms of who they were able to access and how they could be found by the general public. And this continues on to this day amid this heightened form of censorship censorship 
justified by a watershed moment in history, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So that's just a minor, sort of a small summary of censorship and the new Cold War. It has been directly targeted at two poles of this struggle, this issue. One, it's been targeted at independent journalists, independent media, anti-imperialist media, that challenges the new Cold War status quo based in the United States, based in the West. So anybody who talks about China, Russia, Iran, and the United States' aggression toward them were deemed fake news and then suppressed in the algorithm. And then the second poll is, of course, the international media that has supported the work of independent journalists like RT International, Press TV, CGTN. Uh, These outlets have supported the work of alternative media and independent journalists, and they too have been targeted in a really egregious and direct manner, having their content not just suppressed in the algorithm, but essentially taken down all together. And so... We are in, uh, I think, a moment that is chilling in a lot of ways. And, I mean, we can be thankful for these new developments, these new tools like Colin, which allow for voices from all parts of the political spectrum to be free of this kind of censorship. So that is also happening out of this new Cold War. There are other platforms which are attempting to fill the space Because one, I mean, to be quite honest, there is a business opportunity here when the government decides that it can just suppress whatever speech it wants when it doesn't like it. Then you open up the possibility that with with, with companies that are participating in this censorship, they will be viewed as taking one route on a business sense when there's another route, right? All sorts of people who actually want to hear the alternative perspectives and want to hear everyone's perspective, regardless of where you fall politically. And so there will be inevitably people, especially on the business end, who want to ensure that both the principles of quote-unquote free speech are adhered to, as well as the fact that, yeah, I mean, there is space now for investment in this area. And then on the other side of it, yeah, there is also, I think, a lack of trust in the media now. The more that this kind of censorship happens and the more that the mainstream media just parrots one viewpoint, doesn't allow any other perspectives and doesn't really talk about anything that is relevant to ordinary people, then there is even more of an impetus to uh, develop platforms that give an alternative perspective. And so that is one of the outgrowths of uh, this new Cold War environment. And just like anything else, right, just like anything else with this new Cold War, it is connected to the history of how we got to this moment. So this censorship, well, it is heightened, it is unprecedented in some ways. It didn't begin even with this new Cold War. I gave a brief history of the censorship under this, uh, let's say, six-year or so period. 
But even before then, the rudiments of this oppression were being developed. And this begins with the first Cold War, where many people know this as the Red Scare or McCarthyism, but there was also a deep and intense oppression of media at that time. You had people in Hollywood, right? Famous actors, singers. You had them targeted as communists and their careers stripped from them just because they would do things like, for example, support the efforts of organized labor, oppose the Korean War, right? You had these unprecedented attacks even on people that didn't consider themselves communists but were considered communist adjacent or quote-unquote pinkos. You had them targeted. Many of them were, were merely liberals who were opposed to the stifling environment of the Cold War, the stifling discourse, the stripping of civil liberties. And that is where a lot of this censorship can be traced to, the McCarthyist attack on communists, on anyone who challenged the established narrative about socialism during that period, and anyone who challenged the injustices of capitalism uh, and racism under that period as well, and Jim Crow. So that's where it begins. That's where the censorship really begins. You had people like W.E.B. Du Bois lose their passport, ended his life in Ghana. You had Paul Robeson. His career took a huge hit because he stood up to the House of Un-American Activities Committee. And you had, just across the board, a lot of censorship in that period based upon the political objectives of the Cold War, which was to, one, ensure that the United States and its newfound leadership in capitalism was expanded and maintained. And then two, at home, there had to be a massive public relations campaign to erase the most harsh, right? The the most egregious impact of racism and capitalism, capitalist exploitation at home, right? So anyone who dissented against that, anyone who was fighting for improved conditions and for any kind of justice had to be suppressed in some ways. And this led to massive deportations. This led to imprisonment. This led to the executions of the Rosenbergs, right? In 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were accused of being supposedly Soviet spies. There was really nothing that was found in that regard. And even if so, you can argue that that's not a reason to just execute uh, someone. But these, uh, this couple, right, who were politically active, they were uh, killed on the electric chair. So they were executed. And that was the message that was sent in that period during the Cold War, which was you speak out, then you will face consequences. And then when the Cold War ended, we had a new censorship regime arise under the so-called War on Terror. And this massively expanded. And, you know, I skipped over the censorship and the repression of the 60s and 70s, although it was also rampant then, especially for political organizations who are fighting for 
black liberation, indigenous liberation. So I can't just skip over that. But the technology that was used in these campaigns against activists, against any dissenting voices, against revolutionaries, that was expanded under the war on terror to impact essentially everybody, right? It was expanded to strip the civil liberties of not just dissenting voices, but also of the entire population so that a regime of social control could be strengthened for what were very dangerous and enormous steps forward in the U.S.'s attempt to expand its hegemony. So the war on terror, right, you had these criminal wars that were waged in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it was justified based on 9-11. And then you had at home this surveillance regime under the Patriot Act, under the Defense Authorization Act, expand to take and collect these intelligence agencies taking and collecting our data, our personal information, our private information of all kinds, wiretapping, rove wiretapping, meaning that at any moment your phone could become your phone device, your smart device, your TV, your laptop could at any moment become a wiretapped device that could take your imagery as well as uh, your narrative what what you're saying could record all of that data and and so that's the environment that we entered into and this these policies were also used on world leaders right so the united states through its intelligence agencies massively expanded the surveillance apparatus also to undermine even partners of theirs quote unquote right allies of theirs like germany and other countries found that they were also being wiretapped during important international meetings, UN meetings, etc. And that set, I think, just a precedent for what level of censorship is acceptable. A lot of people ended up by force just to live their ordinary lives and through this propaganda and coercion that they had something to fear Right, that they should fear terrorism, that they should fear uh, the Arab world and the Muslim world. So that's why this was all necessary, right? George Bush said that they're coming for our freedoms. That's why they hate us. So because of all of this, a lot of people f- felt like either they had to or that they were in agreement with this massive expansion of censorship. And so... That's where the roots of all of this is, because all of that, right, began this nexus, this relationship between these big tech media companies, these private media companies that uh, really dictate content creation and media on the Internet and cemented this relationship between them and the U.S. government. And so that's what we're seeing now is that there is this massive and close relationship between these two entities, the government, the intelligence agencies, Twitter, right? Twitter has a contract with ASPI, Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is funded by military contractors in the U.S. State Department to 
essentially censor anybody who talks about this genocide of Uyghur questions, Uyghur's question, this so-called accusation against China, these allegations. So if you challenge that on Twitter, this relationship that Twitter has with ASPI is likely to trigger either suppression of the algorithm or outright censorship and banning on Twitter, right? So that's just one example of how closely these two entities work together to police the narratives, police the discourse online about these critical political issues. And the same is happening at a much higher level now, a much more intense level with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And we are seeing this in the erasure of entire outlets, big outlets, right? RT International was a widely watched widely listened to news organization around the world through YouTube, and now it is no longer able to access its audience in that way through those means. And we should all look at this as a direct attack on all of us, because one of the most misleading ways that the establishment, that the New Cold Warriors frame censorship is that it is targeted and that it is meant to protect our liberties, our freedom. It is meant to ensure that fake news, quote unquote, is not allowed to spread around the airwaves. And always remember that Barack Obama was the person at the end of his administration during the 2016 election. He was the one who spearheaded this assault on fake news, which then morphed into Russiagate, which then really morphed into the moment that we are in now. So always remember that everyone's favorite Democratic Party president, Barack Obama, was a catalyst for a lot of the mess that we are in today, especially around this new Cold War. But the fact of the matter is, is that these new Cold Warriors, especially led by the Democrats and the Republicans, especially on the China question, but the Democrats are really spearheading the anti-Russia campaign and they justify it in these ways as well. So they kind of sound like the neocons because they are honestly the neocons at this point who are saying, okay, we need this for our freedom, for our safety. We need this to ensure that fake news is off the airwaves, that Russia isn't allowed to expand its sphere of influence and allowed to shape public opinion. But Really, the censorship on RT, on RT America, on these international outlets, as I demonstrated, affects all of us in the policy realm, right? It is, cannot be disconnected from the way that all alternative voices are being pushed down and suppressed in the algorithms on Google, on YouTube, etc., demonetized, and, some, and now being taken down, right? Because accounts and channels that we're not connected to these outlets are also being taken down that uh, speak a certain way and take certain stances on the Russia Ukraine conflict. So it affects all of us. And when the state in the new cold war, when the United States, its allies under this imperialist regime, when these governments are allowed to do this, it sets just further precedent, for what could come as conditions develop and change. So this goes for all sorts of examples of censorship. 
Julian Assange, for example? What chilling effect does his case have for independent journalism as a whole when someone can be imprisoned and possibly murdered, right? That's the slow-rolling murder of Julian Assange for essentially doing what independent journalists do, which is taking documents that people have and possess and want to expose the truth about war crimes with taking those and then reporting on them and publishing them. His case of being tortured, of being imprisoned indefinitely and possibly extradited and killed by the United States and its allies, that sets a precedent for independent journalism that is chilling in so many ways and creates a dynamic where independent journalists will think twice before taking part in that activity. And the same goes for this, taking down RT America, RT International, YouTube in their community guidelines, literally saying that they will take down channels that take certain positions on, on Russia and Ukraine. That sends the message to people like myself and people like us and those who are interested in the truth on these issues to think twice before giving a perspective that goes against the grain from the establishment. So this affects all of us because it affects the behavior of the general public. It affects the behavior of those engaged in independent journalists, independent journalism and activism and media work and any kind of political work. It impacts the narrative and on the most objective level, it prevents voices which we're able to access platforms through RT and, and other international media. It prevents those voices from being able to get out their perspective on these issues. So censorship in the new Cold War is a huge problem. I myself have experienced this both in the suppression of the algorithm of my work. I mean, I write weekly. I publish weekly. I know for a fact that beginning in 2016-17, right, I know for a fact that my articles published in Black Agenda Report were not getting the same kind of access to and the same kind of readership that it was getting before 2016. And I know for a fact, because I know that I have many videos demonetized on YouTube whenever I talk about Ukraine, Russia, and I also know that my channel has also been suppressed in the algorithm. And I've had people tell me that when I go live, when I post a video, that they don't always get notified, even when they hit the bell. And these are just the ways in which our work is marginalized in small in a smaller manner. And, and there is worry. And I do worry that you know, I won't be able to stay on these platforms for very long. And I am considering other alternatives at this time once I get some free space and some time to make those moves. So, I mean, this is the atmosphere that this new Cold War censorship has produced. It has produced a chilling atmosphere, one where alternative voices, independent voices, anti-war voices are essentially suppressed and a target is placed on their back for potential uh, removal from uh, platforms and spaces where we really depend on getting our information from. So I'm going to end my 
narrative portion of the podcast and, you know, spend the last 15 minutes with you all. Uh, if you have any questions, you can raise your hand, I believe. And if you want to say anything, you want to just have a discussion, uh, please do signal that and I can let you in. Let me see. I don't see anybody yet. Um, here we go. So, Andrew, I will take you. You can unmute yourself. Yes, I can hear you. Perfect. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, I mean, I like grew up in this Facebook, YouTube era, and I mean, it's been remarkable seeing them switch, I mean, not only from, as you very well described, uh, the steps that they've taken to censor alternative voices, uh, recently but also um i mean twitter has been literally suggesting a list of accounts on this russia ukraine conflict and one of those accounts is the radio free europe radio liberty account and so it's been bizarre for me to see that they're being so open about which side they're on and it's always the same side. And, and like you said, those who stand up to that side get silenced. Yeah, no, those are really good points. Uh, Radio Free Europe, for those who don't know, is one of the many outlets that come out of the uh, agency for U.S. Agency for Global Media, former Board of Broadcasting Governor which is connected to the CIA. It was begun by the CIA during the Cold War to wage information warfare. And there's a really funny story about Radio Free Asia, right? Because Radio Free Europe was based in Europe. It was an attempt to sort of demonize the Soviet Union. Then you had Radio Free Liberty and other outlets that were directly targeted toward the Soviet Union, but then you also had Radio Free Asia, which was targeted towards China. And there's a funny story that happened um, when Radio Free Asia started in the New York Times published this. So China was very poor after its revolution and Radio Free Asia had this idea that they were going to get their message out by literally ballooning radios into China in order to get their anti-communist message out. It ended up going disastrously because in China, the level of development was still so poor that not only did people not really have radios or use radios, but the attempt to uh, air balloon radios, airdrop radios onto China uh, did not work at all. Uh, The radios ended up getting blown away by the wind and uh, essentially that operation was a complete failure. But this is really the length that they'll go and it continues on to this day. So you're exactly right, Andrew, that the these corporations are taking a side. They are deeply connected with U.S. intelligence and U.S. intelligence and Western intelligence is deeply connected with these outlets. And the U.S. agency for global media is receiving hundreds of millions of more dollars in new legislation and funding through acts like the America Competes Act that is directly targeted 
in, in directed toward this new Cold War. So there will be a Chinese influence fund, which will receive hundreds of millions from the U.S. government to essentially flag and go after people like us who do not tow the new Cold War line on China. And we can expect that this will also be used uh, against Russia and people who speak out against uh, this new Cold War in that regard. But I'm going to move on to Jason. So Jason, I will make you the next caller. Hi, Jason, you can unmute. Uh, Jason, if you can unmute, you're still muted. Okay, so it looks... Yeah, oh, hello. Okay. Hey, 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 hey. Hey, sorry. Okay. <laughs> this, uh, it's the first time I'm using this. I know, I know. I, it's the second time for me, so I'm still <laughs> learning it I'm, as well. I'm from Hong Kong, China, so I'm now calling you from Hong Kong. Oh, hi, hi. Good hi, evening. Hi. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, actually, it's, it's midnight already. Oh, uh, yeah, so good early morning. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, actually, how's the... Well, I'm have a... Well, some update from my side here. Uh, Nick, you, you know, uh, Shenzhen is next to Hong Kong, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Shenzhen will have a lockdown uh, from tomorrow for like six days, mm-hmm. the whole city, uh, because of there are like 60 cases. Yeah, but anyway, uh, we go back to, to the topic you are talking about, uh, Ukraine and Russia. And uh, so... I, I'd like to know, I, I think probably it's also the first time I've seen uh, so much censorship happening in U.S. I think it's never been seen in the last 20 years or maybe even in your lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, how actually do you think, I, I think also the in the last two years, I, I think uh, because of the COVID and also this war now, created a lot of divide between a lot, a lot of people. Also, I mean, within my families, we are also a big divide <laughs> on many issues. Yeah. And uh, what? how do you see it will impact the U.S. and the society? Because I see such a great divide now in in U.S., which is, I think, a lot of times not necessary. Right. Well, that's a good question. I mean... There's certain there's certainly a lot of divides in the United States, and unfortunately, right there are there are different kinds of divides that can happen on issues. There are necessary divides, which I think are necessary, which are those that deviate from these that or that emanate from the establishment, right? So there should be, and and I and I don't necessarily think this is the worst thing given the state of let's say the media in congress right that there is this lack of trust it makes objective sense but i think the game that is played in u.s politics is that the divides that happen between let's say democrats and republicans in congress biden gop they are divides which are meant to sort of express in the realm of performance this partisanship and therefore give the veneer that there is like this vibrant democracy because there's disagreements that seem hot but are minor and potentially unnecessary in a lot of ways and really just reflect political maneuvers and attempts to 
sort of build a certain kind of image politically, a certain kind of brand, you could call it, right? Because a lot of partisanship in the United States is merely branding. It's merely which side of the political spectrum of what really is one agenda, right? The agenda of war and the agenda of capital, which side do you stand on? Like, how do you, how do you want to look in that, uh, I guess, struggle? And so I think that this kind of censorship, what it does is that it builds up a a real dangerous unity, a a nationalistic unity, uh, a, 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 imperial unity it sort of hinges on this american exceptionalism which presumes yeah that the united states the government the society they have it has the right to adopt this russophobia this anti-russian orientation and has the right to then use that as justification for censorship the same goes also for china right because right before the russia-ukraine conflict China was kind of at the top of the agenda in terms of not just this censorship, right? You had the West, BBC, and and others really targeting China, and then you had CGTN going through a whole lot. But China was really enemy number one at that time, but then when Russia undertook this military operation, Russia came back into the fore and it was a month long process beginning in November and then months of just saying Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade, pumping money into Ukraine, pumping weapons into Ukraine. And then, of course, the operation happened in late February. So this censorship is going to produce unity against Russia, and it has already, because more than four-fifths of the population that polls, so these are mostly probably voters, right, which doesn't necessarily reflect the majority of the population, but they are voters, and they are under the impression that Russia is their enemy now, so 80% of the population. This is similar in the ways that Americans, at least voting Americans, people who take polls on the partisan lines, how they view China. So there is this consensus building in unity around this new Cold War, which is very dangerous and which the censorship helps reinforce. But one of the one of the downsides, we could say, at least from the perspective of imperialism, maybe the upsides for us, is that the more that this censorship happens and the more that the narrative becomes concentrated in just the hands of the cold warriors, actually, the more that the United States and its allies begin to delegitimize themselves. And so we talked about this at Black Agenda Report during Russiagate. How Russia gate right, and how this idea that Russia is so powerful that it can influence political events in the United States, it actually underhandedly delegitimizes the U.S.'s own presumed exceptionalism and superiority by claiming that a much weaker country, a smaller country economically, a country that uh, does not have anywhere near the same kind of military capabilities of the United States, has the capacity to do what the U.S. was accusing it of doing, which was literally shaping an entire election in the image of Russia. And so that 
in and of itself only sows more distrust. It may sow trust in the U.S. as warmonger, but it does not. It will sow more distrust in the United States as an overall system. And I think that's why you see, despite high polling numbers in support of, let's say, anti-China, anti-Russian policies and these new Cold War policies, you also do not see, you also see at the same time that trust in the U.S. government, trust in the media remains very low. And so that contradiction is one that is kind of hard to understand in some ways, but shows and demonstrates that the divides that are being sown in society are in part a byproduct of this new Cold War frenzy, and it does have this blowback effect to those who are waging it to the United States and its allies, which is significant and should not be ignored in any way, because because we need to understand how this is a reflection of a society that is coming apart at the seams, and we need to be able to reach those who are attempting to thinking about uh, questioning the narrative and and wanting to really uh, change uh, this scenario for the better. And so I think that's uh, something that we can glean and and get from this moment of just unprecedented censorship and on the other side of that uh, unprecedented uh, new Cold War propaganda. Uh, I can take one more caller, and then I will probably end the room after that. So if there's anybody that would like to say anything, ask a question, please do. Uh, But if not, then I will likely be ending uh, this podcast for today. Uh, A few announcements. So tomorrow I will be speaking at an event held by Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War. It's a webinar on Ukraine, and you can search them on Google. You can find them on social media and uh, register for that event. So uh, be sure to do that. I will also be sharing that shortly on my Twitter at Spirit of H-O. So... uh, look out for that information and I will probably be publishing my remarks as an article as well. So you can catch that on my Substack at chronicles of in the coming days. And essentially, you know, you can catch this podcast each week at 1130 a.m. Eastern Time. I know that there was just a recent time change in the United States and some of the Western world and some other parts of the world. So I'm sure that that threw me off a little bit. And so just make sure that you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure that you are following me here on Colin so that you are always updated when I go live here. And lastly, the best way to support my work is on the website on my Colin page, patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. But if there's no other callers, I will end the room unless 
someone wants to speak now, uh, raise their hand now. All right, everybody. Well, it was good to be with all you, with all of you, and I will be back uh, next Sunday for another episode. Peace out.